This is Francis. Today we're going to talk about two chapters from the book called Buddhism and Whiteness, Critical Reflections, which was edited by George Yancey and Emily McRae and published in 2019 by Lexington Books. We'll start with a chapter by Laurie Cassidy called The Tranquil Meditator. In this chapter, Laurie Cassidy starts with her own exploration of how, as she puts it, the spiritual practices of white people can be accountable to anti-black violence. She wants to look into how American capitalism hijacks spiritual practices such as Buddhist meditation and thereby subverts their liberative human potential. She wants to think about whether or whether or how Buddhist meditation, as it's so often popularized in North America, is actually turning people's attention away from justices, from issues of justice, by asking people to focus inward on individual change. And if this is the case, then how might this be an example of how a dominantly white point of view, as well as a predominantly white political, cultural, and economic status quo, gets maintained and promoted? To do this, she looks closely at the language of spiritual practice and who benefits or who's disadvantaged by that language or that way of speaking. She also examines the popular image of a tranquil meditator, which, as we've talked about before, is so often a white woman sitting peacefully in a sort of spa-like setting. Cassidy's aim in this uh, chapter is not to say that people shouldn't meditate or that meditation is harmful in itself. She herself is a meditator. But she wants people to think about how these kinds of spiritual practices might actually be reframed so that they could dismantle a white racial point, viewpoint and to resist the kind of individualism that goes along with that. So first of all, she asks, how can meditation practice be an authentic, an authentic catalyst for critical consciousness? That is, how can it be used to help us really understand the reality of racism in our society to truly know it, even as a white person? Cassidy points out that for white people, it's especially hard to see the distorting reality of white supremacy because, as she puts it, white people are socialized into epistemologies of ignorance, which are fundamental to our functioning within white supremacy. So almost from birth, she's saying, white people are socialized to see and understand pretty much everything around us, and I say us because I'm white, in the context of these interlocking systems of knowledge, these epistemologies, that promote, maintain, or actually create the conditions of white supremacy. Let's look at an example of this that Cassidy provides as she goes deeper into the case of meditation. I'm going to start by reading out a full quote that she offers from philosopher Grace Jansen. This is on page 104. Jansen says the following. To the extent that prayer and meditation and books on spirituality actually help people cope with the distresses of life that arise out of unjust social conditions without challenging those conditions themselves, to that extent they act as a sedative which distracts attention from the need to dismantle the structures that perpetuate the misery. 
If books and practices of spirituality help people to calm jangled nerves and release anxieties and renew courage to re-enter the world as it is, then whatever the good intentions of the authors and practitioners, and these are usually not in doubt, what's actually happening is that the structures of injustice are being reinforced. The social and political policies that make for starving children, battered women, and the evils of rising fascism are still being unchallenged as people learn through prayer to find tranquility to live with corrupt political and social structures instead of channeling their distress and anger and anxiety into energy for constructive change. So that's the end of the uh, citation by Jansen from her book called Power, Gender, and Christian Mysticism. So the problem being pointed out here by Cassidy is something that I know many of you have felt yourselves and that we've read about earlier, too, in a few of our readings so far. The problem is that when meditation is presented as a private, individual, and interior psychological state of self-soothing, This might actually work as a kind of sedative, Cassidy says, that would prevent people from being motivated to take action for social change. So in other words, if meditation is presented like this to a a popular audience, what kind of power dynamic is operating there? First, remember that image of the white woman sitting peacefully in the lotus position in a beautiful spa-like setting? Well, why is that image on the cover of Time magazine and not the images of other Buddhist practitioners that might actually be way more common in North America? For example, the uh, scholar Sharon Sue, who we'll be reading from in a couple weeks, says, What I see in real life when I visit Buddhist temples is women chanting, prostrating, and burning incense while they socialize and the kids run around. If any of you have spent time in Buddhist communities, what's the image of a Buddhist that comes to mind most immediately for you? Cassidy mentions another scholar who has a strong critique of that Time magazine image. Joanna Piacenza notes that this image coheres with the ideology in American culture that women are the ones who need to engage in self-improvement. She also points out that the Time magazine cover woman who's meditating doesn't actually look very much like most women. Cassidy explains that the image on the magazine cover suggests the normative idea of white self, which is approved by the white supremacist culture. Meditation acts as a technology to realize and manage this individual autonomous and white self. For those of you who have studied Foucault, this is a classic example of the technology of the self, where mindfulness is the technology for training the self to fit into the norms of the neoliberal capitalist system. And this image then is what is defined as wellness or health. But what about bodies or selves or movements or feelings that don't fit into this model? What about the real suffering and violence of exploitation or abuse that's happening to people on a daily basis? So that brings us back to how this short chapter started. Cassidy ends ends with the following statement. 
Our ability to be with our own complicated, complicit, and painful experience of our white selves is not a way to recenter the conversation on ourselves, but rather one dimension of being capable of deeply listening to people of color and learning how to take responsibility for our shared reality. The next chapter we'll look at is by Carol J. Muller, and it's called Bell Hooks Made Me a Buddhist, Liberatory Cross-Cultural Learning, or Is This Just Another Case of How White People Steal Everything? In this chapter, we're going to read another expression of why and how white people can learn to overcome inherited, oppressive, or racist viewpoints, and how mindfulness is so often linked to whiteness. Muller wants people to become educated about the significance and implications of their own whiteness, but she says that just learning about it isn't enough. It's important to walk the walk and not just talk the talk, she says. She says that many people engage in cultural appropriation and otherizing fascination with Eastern spiritual traditions as with Native American and First Nation traditions without treating people of those traditions with respect and without doing social justice work to challenge unjust conditions under which the actual people connected to those traditions actually live. Muller makes some points that we've learned about before so far in this semester. For example, as she's talking about how cross-cultural engagement might involve a kind of cross, a kind of cultural appropriation, where, as she puts it, whiteness consumes the other without accountability. But she suggests that it's possible to do, to have a respectful kind of cross-cultural engagement that holds everyone accountable. And that this kind of engagement can intervene in and not simply reproduce white supremacist, capitalist, heteronormative, ableist patriarchy. She suggests that what she calls pseudo-Buddhist mindfulness practices, though, might actually be reinforcing the ignorance and oppression that they claim to be overturning. But she wants to offer some parallel and more positively transformative practices uh, drawing on Buddhism. Muller mentions a few Buddhist teachers and teachings that were influential to her, including a Tibetan teacher, Zigar Kongtrul, and the Vietnamese Buddhist monk, Thich Nhat Hanh. Thich Nhat Hanh is especially known for an activist tradition called Engaged Buddhism. Muller also talks about the role of her teacher, Bell Hooks, a very famous African-American author, professor, feminist, and social activist who's published more than 30 books on the intersectionality of race, capitalism, and gender. Muller also talks about the work of psychologist Ellen Langer on mindfulness, and she then summarizes some Buddhist views of mindfulness as well as her own experiences in her own Buddhist community. I'll let you read through all that on your own. Part of what she's presenting here, though, are some examples of how cultural appropriation or cultural exchange can actually occur in, some, in a way that's like a true respectful partnership between communities rather than something that perpetuates oppression. Part of what she's talking about here also is the importance and significance of collaborative work. 
Muller is inspired by a theory of truth that comes from the philosopher Bakhtin. According to that view, truth is not born nor to be found inside the head of an individual person. It's born between people collectively searching for truth in the process of their dialogic interaction. This is really important as we think about what counts as truth or what counts as knowledge or who gets to know what's true. In this view, it's what comes out of dialogue and conversation between people that's true. One practical example of this is what's called activist scholarship. In our university environment, this is a kind of scholarly work where we have to constantly ask ourselves, as Chandra Mohanty puts it, what kinds of knowledge are we producing? And do these knowledges reproduce colonization or are they decolonizing and democratizing? For the most part, our university environments are not like this, right? The university is structured so that so-called expertise is held only in the people who have certain credentials and academic training without necessarily having worked and lived with the challenges relevant to a particular topic, as Muller puts it. There are some exceptions to this, for sure, but you can think about it yourself in your experience as a university student. Who are the people who have the expertise in your experience? Is there expertise that you see in other places that isn't being acknowledged or recognized in our university environment? This article ends with a list that Muller draws from various Buddhist and other sources on how to live and work in a different way. I'll leave you to study those on your own as you continue to think about how practices like collaboration and dialogue or conversation and working with difference might play a role in your own life. <laughs>